What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my good friend and co-host Richard Harris, and uh, we're sponsored to you. We're sponsored today by uh, our friends at Scratchpad and Outreach, as well as Sendoso, and uh, we appreciate them and all their support helping us put on events like the Surf and Sales Summit, as well as produce this podcast. And uh, we're here today with hey, a Scott, repeat guest. Scott, who's the new? We have a new sponsor. You sign. Oh my it. gosh, we do. Start over. No, this is perfect. This is better than Richard. You're on mute. <laughs> <laughs> we're also brought to you by Med Rep Meeting. If you don't know Med Rep Meeting, check them out. Especially if you're in medical sales, um, they're blowing people's minds with their new technology. Med Rep Meeting. Sorry, Peter Skidmore. You can uh, harass me offline later on. We're here with a uh, longtime friend, and I think this is his second appearance now on the Surf and Sales podcast. He's a director, Center for Professional Sales at University of Texas at Dallas, and he has just come out with a brand new book called The Sales Innovation Paradox. His name is Dr. Howard Dover, and before I'm going to let Howard talk, let me read you this quote from the foreword of the book, okay? This is The Sales Innovation Paradox in which increasingly powerful sales technology renders professional sellers increasingly better at making buying experiences significantly worse. Rewind that, listen to it again. My jaw dropped when I read it. Welcome to the show, Howard. Thank you, Scott. Um, good to be back. And I, you guys know that the last time I was on your podcast, I, it reverberated around the world. And I have a dear friend in, in London because of you guys. So um, amazing how about that the reach, reach of podcast and mentoring relationships anyway cool stuff yeah awesome. we've historically done really well in in uh the middle east believe it or not kuwait we've been like number one in kuwait and qatar and places like this who knows how how that happens but three three people are downloading it so. yeah that that that's right so <laughs> talk to us a little bit about uh what you've been up to since the last time we talked to you specifically the sales innovation paradox well, I think it, my background is in technology. So I, I did that for the state of Oregon. I did it for my company. And, and there's this idea that when we apply technology to a problem, it's supposed to get better, right? I mean, it's, that's the whole idea. We're, we're supposed to become either more efficient or, or more effective. Usually efficiency is where we're at. And I, and I did that when I, was a, when I was a systems analyst and a software designer pre-PhD, pre I, I, I automated processes. So I'm a huge believer in the capacity of technology to improve the performance and reduce the waste of time and effort. And so, um, you know, a few years ago, I, I was like, well, we're not deploying technology enough. We're not deploying technology enough. And, and then, then I started saying, well, wait a minute, it's not, it's not getting any better. In fact, it's, it's getting worse. Companies deploy technology and we don't get better, we get worse. And and then there was a bunch of other weird things that started happening, like the SDR explosion and hiring more people, and yet technology was supposed to be more efficient. And so I just had a fundamental question of why is this not working? And that's that's kind of the gist or the, I'm an academic, so that was my research question. I really had a legitimate question with my partners that I work with, with my students who went in the field, that they were experiencing a lot of inertia and a lot of pushback when they got in the field about the use of technology and 
even the management styles, it was, it was just conf a lot of conflict. And so I was uh, like, wow, what, why is this going on? Yeah. So can you give an example of that inertia? Because I think there's a lot of people who conceptually get it, but I also think there's a lot of sales leaders who might be newer in the sales world and they're, they may not get it yet. Well, I, I think I'd, I'd start with um, the concept of a lot of sales management and and leadership is comes from what I call a survival of the fittest model. So you survived, so, um, therefore you have experience and credentials, right? I mean, uh, you know, Scott, I, I don't know Scott well, but I, I definitely know he has survived and thrived a lot as a sales leader. Therefore, a sales leader develops an experience bias, right? I've done it a certain way, therefore it should be able to be done again. Um, and then you have all the shift that's going on, not, not the other word, but actual shift that's going on due to behavioral modifications of everything going on in the world. And you have leadership who's like, I'm basing this off of when I was in the field. So we get clashes. Um, we, we just get natural clashes. So I'm more modern. Maybe I've been taught new technology. We, we tended our program to, to grasp any technology we think we can bring into the classroom, be able to teach in a reasonable time frame, and it would immediately enhance the efficacy and the efficiency of what our students can do. So then put those students in the field and they run up against a manager, not every time, but, but enough. They run up against managers and or executives who say, wait a minute, that's not the way we do it here. And then all of a sudden we experience that friction, that inertia, and actually talented people move on, right? They find the fit, they find the Scott leases of the world, or they find the, the, the other top CROs that are not looking at scaling and headcount, but looking at efficiency and effectiveness and being able to, to, to achieve objectives quickly. They'll go find that leader um, when they experience these kind of problems. Do you, do you feel like a lot of the tools that are being built right now are actually not necessary then? I, I, I read this quote from somebody the other day that said, we live in a time where most tech stack tools are sold to people who don't need them. Do you agree with that or no? Well, I think we have to look at why they're being created. So if, if the market for a sales tool is the efficiency and the effectiveness of the sales organization, then we would get tools that would do that. I'm not convinced that's why we create tools. I think we create tools because there's a, a VC market that is buying a company and we're, we're trying to create. We're building tool, tools with the explicit intent of just selling the tool. That's correct. The, yeah, the VC market has created its own ecosystem that um, I, I'm not going to say that every tool, Scott, but I, I definitely think that a vast majority, you know, this, this is a classic moment where this epiphany hit me. You guys know I'm a college professor. I've, I've, I've seen you guys at different events. I was at AISP back when we actually had events in Chicago. Um, and, and I clearly have a name tag that says professor and UT Dallas. And there was this guy who was a, C, a, a, a VP of sales and he had like 20 people at his booth. And 
I, I looked at his booth and I could quickly determine that this particular tech created maps of where your customer was. And I was like, okay, really not a good fit for me for what I do from school. I don't see where I could put that in. And the, and the VP comes up to me and says, hey, can I introduce myself? I said, yes. And we talked and he said, would you like a demo? And I said, well, I'm I'm a non-revenue guy. I'm not, I'm not going to give you any revenue. I'm a professor. So probably not a good demo. I, 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 look, I look at your screens. This is what I think you do. And he said, yeah, that's what we do. Would you like a demo? And I said, no, I don't, I, I don't want a demo. And, they, and he kept on going for the demo. And that was the moment I went, oh my gosh, his something to do with his revenue equation has everything to do with getting demos, proof of concept, right? I need to get so many demos. That's why I had so many people there. Thank heavens Chris Beal was walking by. And I said, hey, Chris, would you like to meet a new VP who needs to call a lot of people? And Chris took it from there and I was able to get, I was able to peel off. But that was my first moment to say, oh, they're not in the business of helping me or they're in the business of creating a business to sell. So I, you know, you guys know me and Scott knows I would do this and I do it. It's like, I do the same thing. Hey, I'm a solopreneur, but yeah, if you want to give me a demo and you're willing to hear some real direct feedback, let's go for it. <laughs> and I will critique the shit out of them. And I even go so far as I would probably stop them in about 15 seconds and say, okay, stop. Just tell me what pain you solve for me. Tell me my pain and tell me what you're going to solve for me. And they can't answer the question. They can only tell me what they do. Well, they can't tell me the pain they solve. Which, which brings us back to the fundamental challenge, right? Is that what you're, what you're saying is that there's fundamental skill that we lack as a field. And, and I guess the question, once again, with the paradox comes down to how, why, how in the world do we get there? And part of it is because we really focused on scale. We really focus on scaling orgs um, based off of methodologies versus buying behaviors. And, and, it, and we do that because we can do it. We know how to do it. We know what the game plan is, right? But if we do I'm that going because, so this is the part I like. So I think we do that because we, we're just a copycat league, right? What, what I think we're talking about is nobody teaches you about human behavior. Nobody teaches you how people like to make decisions. It's very fundamental. It's very simple. It's the psychology of all this. It's not mm -hmm. understanding how the, your buyer, that active listening means you need to understand your prospect's ego state. For yes. example, when you were in that situation, you tried to explain to him, my ego state is that I don't need this. Like, and nobody teaches it. And to your point, all we do is try to clone the best sales rep, promote him into leadership, think because they've done some interviewing and maybe onboarded some people that they're great leaders when in fact nobody teaches the soft skills right and that to me is the piece that's i agree with everything in your book that's the one piece that i think nobody talks about enough um is that nobody teaches you how to do that stuff you know? so, so i'm assuming you didn't get to the end because i say don't get no i'm just kidding Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I got mo I got all the way to the end about Gen Z, which I want to talk about later. But um. all right, yeah, it's you know. So I think it. it so coming back to your question, Scott, uh, to kind of close that off, 
Um, I, I, I do think some products are designed with very specific intent, but unfortunately, I think a lot of a lot of companies are just chasing the VC, the the VC funding round. Now we're we're in a new world. I, I I'm not that hooked in. I think, you know, one of the two of you is probably more hooked in than I am in that space. But it definitely created a frenzy over the last five to ten years, um, in the Martech space and in the sales tech space. I mean, just looking at that ecosystem alone and how many jobs it created. And it created its own kind of frenzy in the way that they went to market, kind of created a group of people who perceive that they know how to generate revenue because they can get a meeting. And, and that's I, I think that's kind of going to create a bit of a ripple effect for the field for a good decade. Which um, is great for me because that's what I teach. So you just gave me job security. Yeah, those of you who are in training, the, the next decade is going to be, you know, gee, you're, it's going to be the decade of gold because we're... I guess we're you're not, not retiring anytime soon, Richard. Dude, I'll I'll <laughs> retire in 10 years. 10 years sounds good to me. I'm only 63 at that point. All right. So, so I, have, I have a question for you. You know, I was reading in the book, one of the numbers that really was staggering to me, and it, and it aligns with the technology, it makes sense, but the change and the concept and belief and usability of SDRs. Like okay. when you, you, if, if you're, if you can share those numbers, it, like it was, I knew this, it doesn't surprise me. I kind of see it, but it was just sort of like, wow, holy cow, here's what's going on. So the first thing I'd like to say is I wish I was smarter and I did things intentionally, but usually it's serendipitous finds, right? So I was trying to prove that Dallas was like a big market because, you know, Scott's down there in Austin and they're like growing like weeds down there in sales roles. And um, so I was trying to establish was was Dallas one of the biggest sales cities in the country. And so I went out to LinkedIn and I found we were actually number four uh, in 2018, 2017. And so, um, you know, just out of curiosity, I kept checking to see did we maintain our position um, in the top 20 markets. So what I did just to, once again, I'm an academic, so I'm gonna give people the, the, the information and the data, which is probably boring to, to, to people, but I just wanna say that it's backed up. And so LinkedIn has the economic graph 20 markets that it, it runs in the United States. So I simply took the data of sales roles and sales development roles for the 20 major markets. I started that in 2018, took a snapshot. And then I kept updating it about every six months, maybe a year, every six months. And then, so what I what I now have is up till 20, um, 2021, I need to update it for 2022, is a three to four year look at the growth of sales roles in every major market in the United States. Um, and then serendipitously, what I found was that, wait a minute, we started growing phenomenally in SDR roles. So you'd say, well, of course we did in Austin, in Silicon Slopes in Utah, right? And and there, then of course, when you go into the San Francisco Bay Area market, of course we did, right? Yeah, of course we did. But what I think was strange is it happened everywhere. It happened across the country. And so 
over the period of time, over the three-year period of time, we went from a split. So if we looked at the split, it was 50-50, 50% SDRs, 50% sales roles. But now if you if you fast forward to the most recent cut, it's actually one-third sales roles, two-thirds SDRs. This is across the whole country. This is not Austin. This is not Boston. This is, you know, this is in places like Milwaukee and, and down in Atlanta and in Miami. Um, so across the country, we've had this explosion of SDRs. When you take that into combination with LinkedIn's report from 2018. So in 2018, they did a, a three or four year backward look that they said the SDR function had grown 780% in that time frame. Then during the time frame I just quoted, it's 86% growth. Meanwhile, the actual headcount in salespeople actually dropped 20% in the three years, the last three years. So we've had an explosion of SDRs and a reduction in a. And why do you think that is? What do you what do you think? I have a theory around it, but what is your what is your data telling you or your insight telling you? Uh, well. The first one that comes to mind is the perception that it's cheaper. Yes. So I can, I can, when I, when I get a uh, boomer who's retiring and that headcount is costing me two, 200, 300, I could pull in multiple SDRs in a market, not, not in San Francisco, but I could put an SDR hub in in say Dallas, or I could put an SDR hub in Atlanta and I could hire maybe three to five positions. And do you, for the one and position do you think that that's before. the right move? Uh, no. <laughs> All right, so what is, so, so I mean, what is no. the right move? Well, I think you have to come back and say, okay, if, if an individual is making this move, let's talk about it, let's isolate it, one company. So. This is the economist in me, which will, which will, of course, bore the audience again, but I'll try to make it tight. And the, the economist says, well, we isolate the situation and assume the company's operating by themselves in a market with no competition. The question then becomes, is there enough white space to go after? If so, this is a good strategic move, potentially, right? We, 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 get, more, we get more in the funnel and we get more awareness. Um, so it, it, it could work. It could work, but oftentimes it does not work. So now, now the problem is we're not in an isolated market. We don't operate by ourselves. And I just gave you the data point that said, we, we actually, when you bring it all together, it's a 13 times, that's a 13X increase in the number of SDRs. And when you add the, the technological capacity of the SDRs to do outreach, whether that is through using um, an outreach or a sales loft to increase the number of outbounds, the number of dials, the number of LinkedIn. We increase the capacity to touch the customer as well with technology in the same time frame. Now, those two things don't make any sense together. We just increased the number of people doing the job by 13 times, and we just enhanced their ability to do it by 10 to 100 times. If you use connect and sell, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're up there in the stratosphere, right? Yeah. But Chris, Chris Beal so, over there at connect and sell always likes to say, if you're not careful, you're just going to, you're, you're going to increase the suck. So, so at the end of the day, what we've got 
is last time I checked, and maybe you guys, maybe you guys have better data on this. Did we increase the number of buyers by like 130, uh, 13 times, <laughs> a thousand times? So I missed that, miss that memo as well. So what so, is? So at the end of the day, what we have is a customer sitting there being pummeled by technologically enhanced 13 times the SDRs. So you ask me, is this a good decision? I would say collectively, no. Collectively, actually, it's it's tragic because now you've got an ecosystem with noise all over the place and the buyer is modifying behavior like crazy. What are they modifying? What is the bot, you know, we can go deeper into that whole numbers thing, but I think you've made your point. Yeah. Talk more about what's the buyer modifying. Well, there's, there's two modifications in my view, and, and I, I talk about two cycles in the book. The first modification is technology is modifying me, right? So I, I get my iPhone. I, I, I love, I love my, my ring, right? I, on my front door. I don't answer my front door anymore. I just, you know, I'm like, oh, cool. Hey, there's a salesperson on my front door. So if why I would just, I answer my phone for a salesperson if I don't answer my own front door? <laughs> if, I just, if I just sit in the back of my office, because my office is in the back of my house, right? And if I had to walk all the way to the front of my house, I would open the door and I probably would listen. But because I have a ring, I look at my phone and go, yeah, I don't know who that is. It's I really need to move my office away from my front door. This is Huge fail on my part. God, you know where my office is, and this happens to me daily. I love that you're bringing this out, Doctor Dover. This is fabulous. So <laughs> it, you know, Scott, it's you got it. You probably have a Texas McMansion. You just need to move rooms. You just got to move. He does have a Texas McMansion. I'm excited. I'm going to relocate my office to the backyard. Yes, that's right. And then and then and then just make sure your ring tells you who's at the front door. And you know yeah. when it's the the pharmacy dropping off, I immediately go to the door and grab grab the, the 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 drugs right because i don't want the drugs to disappear or if it's an amazon i'll go get you know go get the package but if it's somebody else so yeah that's just a clear sign of behavior that doesn't like his drugs to disappear either i'll just leave it at that no no i don't no i don't so then and you just move that into listen linkedin <laughs> i don't know how often it, there's some there's some trainers out there that are teaching connect and spam right and oh, um, oh wow how does Mr. Beal feel about that phrase, connecting spam? Connected. Well, but it's LinkedIn, right? And we're, we're somebody connects with you and you're almost like, let's see how long before they, it, you know, we know they're going to pitch, but at the end of the day, really, I mean, if you're getting 20, 30, 40, 50 of these a day, so I quit, you quit connecting. You look at the title and you say, ah, sales role. I don't know if I'm going to connect with that person because I'm pretty sure they're just going to pitch me, right? So we start getting buyers who are disengaging. The research by Gartner said that up to 70% of people now want a rep-free experience. Well, there's your behavioral modification. So, so the first part is the technology. When a new technology gets released, we modify our behavior, we adopt and adapt, but then we also adopt and adapt to techniques from salespeople. So the combination creates a double shift. Yeah. But then once, once the new fandangled technique becomes implemented by the masses it's no longer new and unique anymore that's and right. its performance starts to decay that's correct 
Yeah, every time, like right now, video is hot, right? And uh, yeah, but what ha now? What happens when every single salesperson sends videos every single day, right? Now it's saturated. No. Well, yeah. I, well, you would think. See, that's right now. Not enough people do it. But yeah, that's the same thing, right? It's a new technique gets gets brought in. Yeah. We get huge, we get huge results from the technique because it's it's a pattern interrupt, right? We're in, we're patterning interrupting, and it, and the only reason it stays a pattern interrupt is that everybody doesn't do it. But if everybody starts doing it, it isn't pattern interrupt anymore. It's it's the pattern. It becomes the new pattern. So the buyer initially will react to new techniques. But the more frequency they see it, they start behaviorally modifying. We're usually about the same time everybody's scaling up on the technique. I think I've told this story before. It's like, I remember, you know, I'm old enough in literally last century that we weren't allowed to count emails as cold calls because we didn't have the technology to track it. Meanwhile, our emails, and, and I'm literally talking in like, 2000 literally 2000 2001 our emails had the best traction yeah that's very similar actually to how social works right now there's yeah. no way to really track how many people you connected with or how many linkedin dms you sent at least not plugged in connected to the crm right yeah so well so I, I, go ahead i think go ahead go ahead no no i was i was going to shift this but i wanted to hear your thought first well, I was, I was going to kind of shift to say, so the question then becomes, this sounds like a dismal science, right? I mean, we're, we're basically in a horrible place. And, and, and so yet what I've, what I wanted to do is say, okay, that's not very encouraging that, that this thing is a paradox and it just can't be fixed. So then I went out and said, okay, who is doing exponential performance and what are they doing differently? Right. What 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 are they doing differently? And um, so there was a couple of companies. Microsoft's uh, demand gen division is one of the early ones that I noticed. They were just doing it drastically different, seeing 10x, 8x, 6x performance differentials and KPIs, no increase in headcount, all technology deployment. And so as I talked to them, I realized what they were doing was they were they were not doing these things. They were not, they weren't scaling their SDRs. They were being relevant to the customer. And, and the problem with using Microsoft is that everybody will say, well, okay, yeah, but that was Microsoft. Um, so they had all the means, the capacity. Um, so when I was at sales 3.0, right before the pandemic shut everything down, I presented some of this stuff on the stage in Vegas and one of the MBA teams contacted me and said, hey, you know, I want to talk to you. And uh, it was the Sacramento Kings. And so the guy contacts me and says, hey, I just want to thank you for, for telling me that I don't need to do activities anymore. And I said, hey, dude, that's not what I said. I didn't say you don't need to do activities. He said, well, let me tell you a story. And he, I said, okay. He said, we quit, we quit doing activities. And I said, okay, well, then how are you generating revenue if you're not? He said, no, no. He said, we quit tr tracking activities. He said, what we did is we said, hey, you know your customers best. Talk to the customer in a way that they value the relationship with the Sacramento Kings. And their sales went through the roof 
Um, fascinating story. They're one of the most profitable franchises in the, in the NBA per seat. And they, at the time, they had losing seasons. So they were making more revenue than the guys. That, that, oh, they still have losing seasons today. Don't worry. They're still fairly <laughs> profitable. It sounds like. It's yeah, like, well, the Oakland A's are profitable. It's like the, I was going to say, it's like the, it's like the LA Clippers of yesteryear, you know, before they never spent any money. So, so, and then, then I kind of looked at, I, we, we went back in the pandemic. I got a, I got a little snapshot from one of my students that graduated about four, four years ago. She moved from her first job to a second job. She was sitting in a group that everybody in the team had between five and 10 years experience. And she just sent me one picture. And that picture was the Salesforce closing ratio or the, the closing pipeline of her versus her team. And she was 10 X. And I said, can I, can I publish this? And she goes, no, I, I shouldn't have sent it to you. God, please delete that off your phone. I don't want to be fired. And you know, there's people's names on that. And I said, okay, but can I interview you? Can I interview you and see what you're doing? And that made me realize that I had the number one salesperson in all of Adobe worldwide that was one of my alumni. I had one of the top producers at IBM as one of my alumni and one of the top producers in North America at Qualtrics as one of my alumni. And I interviewed them all during the pandemic. And I said, what are you doing differently? What, what do you think makes the difference? And they said, I assume the customer is in a constant state of shift. Therefore, I don't do the same thing more than, he said, I'm constantly iterating what I do. What I did yesterday, what I did last week, isn't the same that I'm doing in the future. I use technology to enhance my ability to understand the buyer and to touch the buyer in a moment and in a way that they, they find valuable. And every one of them basically said, I'm constantly agile. I know the customer's moving, the customer's adapting. And so I have to be constantly moving and adapting. Now, the tough part of that is, how do you scale that? How do you scale that? That's a tough question for leaders. How do you that's get the human the behavior? Happen? Understanding the human, that's what I was talking about, is you've got to teach that other piece rather than... But can you create a culture of it? And is there a limit to the culture you can create? And so that's kind of the that's end when of you the hire Scott. Yes, I can teach it and Scott can build the culture. <laughs> but Scott, is that easy to maintain that culture? No, absolutely not. It, it, I just had this conversation with somebody the other day. It's, it's, if you've done it enough times, it's not that hard to create a really good culture for the first 10 people. It's not that hard to create a very good culture for the first 30 to 50 people, maybe even. Once you go beyond 50 people, it dissipates so much. Things change and evolve and it becomes this new thing. And the mistake a lot of people make is they try to replicate the zero to 10 person culture rather than realizing they need to create a new culture altogether that fits this 50 to 100 person kind of environment, I think, at least. Well, I mean, you're you're speaking from experience. What I what I looked at is all the hundreds of companies that have talked to me over the last decade and watching that pockets 
you know, even in a big company, you can create a pocket of performance, but the challenge becomes most yeah. companies then attempt to scale it. They try to scale that and, and it, it usually fails miserably. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. And I, that's the, the end of the book talks about leadership inertia and, and trying to say, hey, be honest about the fact that there are limitations on how to do this. And this concept of scaling agility, um, maybe somebody can pull it off, but I think it's more let it infect the org. You know, let it let it be a concept of contagion versus um, heavy handed deployment of strategy. And what I've seen is is when companies allow some of our people to go into their company, they literally will infect the org, but they can only infect the org if they have a manager that allows it to happen and a senior leader who gives permission to deviate from whatever the culture is. Completely agree. Because so many companies have standardized sales methodology shops where they're really focusing on scaling. And the reason they do that is because methodologies are easy to scale. It's easy to teach a methodology and develop a cadence structure. And here's how we deploy our, our playbooks. And it, that's, I, don't get me wrong, it's not easy, but it's easier than trying to teach agility, movement to customer shift, constant iteration. That, yep. that requires a lot of complex thinking. So it's it's the reason we don't see it per se. That doesn't mean it can't infect an org and, and literally transform an org. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been, I've been reading a lot about this lately and it's there's this concept that we believe we are all rational and we are not. And this is a really good example because, and you do need some level of structure and process, absolutely. And it needs, it, it needs to be rigid, but it needs to be agile and flexible. But the reason we allow it is that it now allows us to lay blame when it doesn't work to support our own bias of rationality. So that when it doesn't work, oh, we chose the wrong process. And who put that process in? The leadership team. So therefore- Are you talking about sales still, Richard? Are you talking about the government all of a sudden? I do. This goes across <laughs> the board, man. This is, you know, I don't know. You could probably say the same thing about the education institution, right? Dr. Dover, like, you know, the politics involved of organizations. But so it's, it's this is fascinating. I want to, God, wow, this is flying. This is really good. A um, couple of things we want to cover, but I want to shift. And of course, you know, Dr. Dover, we always turn it around to say, you know, what questions do you have for us? But let's talk about Gen Z coming in right? They're moving in. You once told me a couple of months ago when we were talking that, you know, we millennialized the job experience for the last five years, seven years. Now we're going to have to Gen Z it. What does that mean, so to speak? Well, I think, I think leaders, if, uh, you know, if you ask a leader the following questions, you might just get them to give you a look that says, oh my gosh, how do you know what's going on in my org? And that is that, They've they've millennialized the the culture. They've millennialized the promotion structure. They've millennialized the incentive plan. They millennialized the office work environment, and yet everybody coming out. Let me let me revise my statement. A majority of the people who are coming out of colleges right now are Z's, and they don't want almost everything we just defined workspaces. 
The open workspaces, Z's hate it. They want their own office. Oops, that's a, I don't know how many billions we've spent doing that. And then the comp plans, right? It's, it's very millennialized and yet Z's are coin operated. Then let's talk about promotions, right? Promotions have been, hey, I got to give you incremental promotions. These will look at you and go, did you really just promote because I've been here for six months? What did I accomplish? What are you going to make? Is there, do I, do I have more responsibility? Do I have more? I mean, why did you do that? And so it's interesting because the clash. So, so if you think about, if you go backwards and you think about the clash that, the, the boomers and really the Xers were probably having the bigger clash. The Xers and the millennials were clashing about culture maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, wh whatever the time is, right? We've had this, this clash of cultures. And so now we've got, we've pretty much millennialized things. The, the, the Xers have kind of given up and said, yeah, I guess we just got to do it a different way to keep everybody appeased, right? We, so now we've got this, this kumbaya moment going, and here comes these. And one of the favorite things I like to say to a, a, a leader about a Z is club. You love club, right? So, okay, so I hit club. I hit my performance number in my first year. And, and I, I'm being a bit facetious, but the millennial, you know, you take them to wherever it is, you know, you take them to Cancun, you take them to Greece, whatever the case may be, you take them to Costa Rica for surf and sails, whatever the case may be. And then they say, all right. And you say, hey, by the way, next year, you can do it again. And the millennial goes, awesome. Now the Z, you tell the Z the same thing. They come to club and you say, hey, by the way, next year you can do the same thing. And, they, and they'll say, so that's all there is. I just keep getting on this little thing and keep going yeah. in a circle and come. So what back. does Z want? What do they yeah. want then? I want I want fulfillment. I want growth. I want I want to be good at my job. I want to know that I'm actually developing as a human being. You've got to show me a path. You've got to actually show me that, hey, you go to club, but maybe there's another level of club. But it you gotta also, it's gotta. It's not just the club. It's got to be around their their personal. Um, but how is that different than millennials? Um, so we're once again, this is getting into a tough spot to, to, to I don't want to pick on the millennials. So I, I think the differentiation is that the Z's want to be proficient and they want to gain. They don't want to gain experience. They want to gain credentials and capacity. I think that millennials are a little bit okay with just progressing. I, I progressed because I was here. They, don't get me wrong, I think they wanna be competent, but I, I think the drive for competency is so much stronger with Z's. And the biggest thing you're gonna witness with Z's is their complete disengagement at the weirdest moments. And by the way, you don't get them back. So this would be literally you come off club and, and you say, hey, uh, it's the same, you know, it, it's the same thing. And they go and they leave. They, they don't, they're just like, well, apparently that's it. So I'm going to go find something that gives me, gives me an ability to grow and learn and develop as a human being. I don't think this is a tough, I don't think this is a tough fix. 
But I do think it's a conflict because I don't think the millennials are going to appreciate having the structure that they've created that they enjoy being disrupted by the new group. And yet mm-hmm. when the biggest conflict I see in a classroom, if I get, because I've now zed, I've zed the curriculum now. And uh, it's when a team just begins to implode and inevitably, you know what I've got? I've got somebody who's a leftover millennial and I've got Z's and they're just not behaving at all together. And they're just in complete conflict on the way to go about it. Can you please record end. that and release it for all of us? <laughs> <laughs> that is that is genius. I'm, I'm sorry to kind of interrupt, but we're, we're getting I'm down and, um, to where we got in. But that, that's for, like, we could come back and have that whole conversation because I'd love to dig in more on that Z versus millennial. Yeah. Um, Andrew Loring at Texas A&M did his dissertation on this. So that may be a guy to bring on. Um, I was going to say, please introduce us to him and then introduce us to that woman who did so well. We'd love to have her on. Um, I think that would be fun. Um, want to give a shout out to our sponsors, obviously, of uh, MedRep. Uh, we'll do them first since Scott butchered it at the beginning. Uh, Outreach, uh, Sendoso, and Scratchpad, thank you all for sponsoring us. And uh, by all means, don't misinterpret what Dr. Dover is saying that everybody should get rid of this technology that we like to promote. Um, but we need to be better at it. And I think we all know that. And I think that's a that's a key piece. And don't think you're gonna technologically get your way to profitability alone. It's a big piece of what I'm hearing from, from all this. Um, Dr. Dover, what question can we answer for you real quick before we have to, to end this? Anything? Well, I'll... I'll correct a little bit. I'm actually a firm believer in the use of technology. If you came into my classrooms, you'd see us using all types of technology. It's the fact that it's been used so poorly in the field that's baffled me. And that's, um, I, I think the question that I have for the two of you is um, uh, at, at some point in my life, I'm hoping to go to surf and sales, but uh, I, I, I don't know how to convince the number one partner of my life that that would be a good move so uh but some point it's on my bucket list guys it's on my bucket list. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to help you offline in a non-recorded way with this particular objective i actually have an answer for that one <laughs> that you want recorded yeah no this is a good answer actually i think is that you come to surf and sales and then you have her and your family come down after for a little vacation and oh. You therefore say, hey, I'm going to do this, but it's not just about me. We're going to go have a good time, too. That would be my recommendation. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you the response offline. Yes, I can, <laughs> I can tell you. By the way, that's how we've been able to get away with doing two of them back to back in November. So is that the family gets to come down after for Thanksgiving. So, um, well, Dr. Dover, right. thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Always good to see you, man. Good to see you. All right. Uh, by the way, book, where can they, uh, Amazon, I assume. What's the title it's, of the book? Yeah, Amazon and all online resellers, uh, August, October, sorry, October 18th is official launch day. Great. And uh, we'll be at AISP event in Austin on the 19th, and we're working on a AISP event in Dallas on the 18th. I'm going to try to come see you when you're in Austin. Awesome. All yeah. right. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Dr. Dover. Thanks.